Blog Talk Radio. Issues 
that are affecting our community and our people. Right now, let's get started with the party, and the way we get started with our party is to introduce you to our political panelists, the analysts for today. So at this point in time, we'll bring in Brother Anthony, and we'd like to say welcome to Africa on the Move, Anthony. Hey, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Uh, revolutionary greetings to my fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony, next we will bring in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, peace, Brother Africa, and peace to all those who have been sounding my voice. My name is Haki Kamaki Mishoki. Coming with African awareness, and I'm all about institution building. And um, the reason why I'm so uh, in tune to institution building, that recently there was a situation, I believe in Florida, where an 11-year-old uh, African child refused to, uh, play, to cite the Pledge of Allegiance. And, of course, the teacher's response to the child was that if you don't like it here, then why don't you leave? And the kid's response was, well, they brought me here. In other words, he's saying that given my unique history, you know, I don't know precisely where I come from in Africa. And so, therefore, to go back is simply not that easy. So as opposed to having dialogue with the child, he decided to get the police involved. And as a consequence, they arrested the child, allegedly not because he refuses to say the Pledge of Allegiance, because he was being disruptive. And the mere fact that they're charging him with something bogus that's been disruptive speaks volumes in terms of just how much uh, how much contempt they have for African children. The mere fact that the police had to be called in the first place speaks volumes in terms of, you know, uh, this whole notion and the fact that uh, African children are somehow uh, more criminally culpable. And I think it's very, very problematic. So our institutions in the community in terms of combating situations like that, and we, and we, and we can reasonably expect that our kids are vulnerable to all these kind of prejudices. So in, in, in arresting this child under the guise that he was being disrupted, it was just a pretext because the bottom line was really all about was the fact that he refused to cite the pledges of allegiance, and he understood precisely why he wouldn't say the pledges of allegiance because of the uh, animosity for African people, and so he didn't want to be a part of that. So clearly, we need institutions in terms of combating these kind of injustices. But more importantly, we have to create institutions to protect our children, because obviously a bright kid, and, and the mere fact that he understands at his age. You know what's going on in the world uh, speaks violence in terms of just how much information he's been receiving from his parents, from his neighborhood, and so forth. So we have to protect children like that. But in order to do that, we have to have institutions. So I think institutions are indispensable uh, in terms of our fight in society, particularly as society continues to deconstruct. So clearly, institutions are very, very important. And for the Africa, I want to thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Haki. For having Brother Haki, we bring in Brother Zabari. Brother Zabari, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thanks. We have some difficulty with Brother Zabari. We'll come back with him later, and let's go with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school year, 1968. 
I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Mosey. Uh, do we have Brother Zabari? Brother Zabari, welcome to Africa on the Moon. I think we're still having difficulties with Brother Zabari. What we'll do right now before we go into our first segment, what's going on in your world and the community, we would like to again acknowledge our absence of our dear sister, Sister Hattie. Um, she is still recovering. We'd like to again give our best wishes to her and wish her a speedy recovery. So, Sister Hattie, uh, shout out to you. So, okay, panelists, let's get started for the day. There are so many things going on, so I know that um, the world's waiting to hear what you have to share with them for this week, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, well, I want to follow up on what um, Haki stated that uh, happened to the African youth out of Lakeland, Florida. Um, he had he hadn't only refused to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, he had refused to stand for the uh, national anthem, as also, which uh, and his rationale was that it's offensive to African people, which is true. And uh, he uh, and he got into a discussion uh, with a, the substitute teacher that didn't understand the uh, you know school policy that students do not have to stand for the national anthem or pledge of allegiance. She was not aware of that. So uh, and uh, she is out of Cuba apparently. And uh, that's where that exchange uh, uh, between her and the student uh, took place. Uh, you know, that's in the context in which it took place. She said that if you don't, if you don't like it in the U.S., leave. And that's when he pointed out that uh, that he was brought here. So, uh, and uh, you know, I just wanted to uh, you know add a little context to what uh, Brother Hafi had pointed out earlier. Also, there were uh, demonstrations uh, in various cities throughout the U.S. and the world protesting uh, the U.S.-led coup attempt against the Maduro government in Venezuela. And one of those demonstrations took place in Newark, New Jersey, uh, yesterday uh, around 10.30 in the morning. Also, uh, there was a rapper uh, that was shot over 20 times by the police. Uh, I don't recall the name of the rapper, but he was uh, he, he, he sent it, uh, he was in his early 20s and was shot over 20 times while he was waking up from, uh, from uh, being asleep in a vehicle in his car. So that's somewhat of what's going on in my world and community. Thank you, Brother Hampton. Found Brother Hampton, bringing Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, what's going on in your world and the community? Yeah, Brother Africa, if, if you and the, the panelists would bear with me, but I, one of the things I find extraordinary about society is the level of social pathology that exists in society. 
the inability for a large number of people in the society to actually distinguish what's right from what is wrong. And certainly when you look at it in terms of what's happening in terms of um, 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 Venezuela, now clearly what, what is happening is criminal. But the mere fact that you got so much support in society for that kind of that kind of criminal activity speaks values in terms of the minds that exist in so many people in the society. I think to some extent we got to look at the institutions as they exist and understand the inherent criminality, particularly in financial institutions, that is actually rubbing off on the people. But there were some examples in which, you know, um, sort of underscore this kind of social pathology that exists in American society. Number one, there was a lieutenant, um, uh, he was a lieutenant in the Coast Guard, and he was in the process of carrying out mass murders of so-called Democrats, of those people who were enemies of Donald Trump. Now, and that's very, very interesting. As, a, as an officer in the U.S. military, uh, he was willing to actually kill people based upon the views that they take. Uh, so I find that very, very ironic that you take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States, but yet you're willing to kill people simply because they have an idea. So I find that extraordinary. And the mere fact that he did, couldn't distinguish between, you know, the appropriateness of the behavior and the justification of his behavior speaks values in terms of social pathology that I talked about. The second thing that's a Navy SEAL, and this guy was in Mosul, um, Iraq, and uh, he was responsible for killing a, 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 young, a young teenager who was in, badly injured, and he killed him. And when they interviewed him, he bragged about the fact that since his time in, in, in Iraq, he killed over 200 people. Now, the mere fact that you're going to actually boast about killing people, uh, regardless of the circumstances, speaks valiance in terms of your inability in terms of discerning what is right and what is wrong, even to understand on a human level, you know, the kind of pain that you inflict when, on family members when you kill people. And lastly, uh, you know, and this is, this is, this is you, know, you know, it's not unique to George Bush, but it's unique to George Bush in the sense that, you know, as an upperclassman at Yale University, um, he had actually, as a, um, as a um, sorority member, that means as a, as a fat brother, as a fat individual, um, he had advocated the, uh, that in terms of these um, uh, rec- these um, kind of um, these kind of um, little events that they hold in terms of recruitment drives. He advocated that in terms of uh, the pledges that they were actually branded by Texas Branding Irons. For those who don't understand what that is, simply put, that is the the irons they use to brand cattle. He's actually talking about inflicting that kind of pain on people who pledging for these fraternities. Uh, so it speaks values in terms of his insensitivity, his, his unawareness in terms of just how much pain can be inflicted upon a human being. So I think it's very, very ironic, you know, that in a society that keeps talking about human rights that is so excuse me, is so in opposition to what is what is what is and what is right and what is just. So I think this whole question in terms of social pathology in American society is something that at some point the society has to take a deeper look at. Thank you, Brother Haki. Going with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, upcoming this week, we're expecting uh, to hear some more about Donald Trump and his, his uh, dealings uh, through, through his attorney, his ex-attorney, Cohen. Uh, he'll be testified uh, this week in, in, before Congress. And that should be interesting. Uh, uh, the, the situation continues with you know, demonstrations around Venezuela and uh, 
and you know, it's just uh, it's been a rough week for me. I had a death in my family, so I really don't have a whole lot to say. Thank you. All right, thank you, Brother Moses. And if we have Jabari on the line, will you please hit once, Jabari, so we can bring you in. If you're on and hear my voice. Yes, I'm here. Please hit one. Okay, Jabari, can what's going on? Yes, we can. can what's going on in your world? Yes, we can. So I recently um, read this article, and this article is in reference to DARPA, which is a military research, the research branch of the military, and DARPA stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And they're starting a program called PALS. And the acronym stands for Persistent Aquatic Living Sensors Program. And what they're going to be doing is they're going to be studying aquatic life. So clearly there's some type of water-based mission they're getting ready to engage in, and they got a object, a project in place where they're going to be studying the water. So this is something that people need to continue to be aware of in terms of what's the long-term ramification of this type of study occurring, given the kind of research that DARPA engages in because they are the military research wing. Hmm. Well, you know, this Brother Bobby, I know they've been doing studies, studies in aquatic life to see if they use elements as weapons for defense as it relates to um, being a defense mechanism. You know, such as we look at these um, cartoons, we look at dolphins carrying bombs and all kind of electronic devices to monitor people um, down now using uh, fish life to serve in that capacity. So, you know, it's no telling. Uh, and let me would. just share this sentence from the article. This new biocentric PALS technology will augment the Department of Defense's existing hardware-based maritime monitoring systems and greatly extend the range, sensitivity, and lifetime of the military's undersea surveillance capabilities. That sentence says it all right there. Hmm. Well, people, it sounds like to me, if you want to be free, you better be organized because the enemy is using every means possible as a tool to um, continue their control. So that, also, 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 Africa, uh, also, what's interesting about that technology on the seas is the fact that it's, it's already having sonar in particular is having a, a very deleterious impact and very negative impact on the, on the animals that live in the seas. And we have numerous instances of whales, uh, pilot whales, and dolphins beaching themselves because of the damage done to their, their internal uh, organs. So clearly, uh, this notion in terms of um, destructiveness is just so endemic in terms of the way they think that they don't even get, they, they could care less because what's more important for them is power at all costs. And if that means destruction of wildlife, destruction of human life, or destruction of even the planet, it's inconsequential as far as they're concerned. So unless people wake up and realize that, this, that we're all threatened, irrespective of our politics, the mere fact that they're so destructive and understanding that potential for the destructiveness where at some point reach out outdoors, we have to wake up and realize that we got another recourse but do as the jelly John or the yellow vest has done in French and we begin have to begin to take a stand because we really don't have a choice. Hmm. You know, panelists, um when you're talking about how they exploring animals in the seas, I wonder where's where's the animal rights when it comes to this 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 type of behavior. 
do we view that as form of abuse of animals? Or is it, it is. Game, as long as it's in the interest of the State Department? But go ahead, Brother Anthony. How do you view that? I feel that as uh, definitely exploitative and and uh, and uh, uh, oppressive of, of animals. And the thing and the thing about it though, the reason why uh, there isn't a big hue and cry about it, I think is because um, uh, let's see, except for except for the smallest um, uh, 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 creatures that live in water. Uh, aquatic life aren't co- aren't commonly kept as pets, and there isn't that sentimental bourgeois attachment to them that you see. Uh, you know, uh, when it comes to things like dogs, cats, and uh, birds. But uh, but 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 it's a, a, a but it damages the environment, and it affects uh, human life. Uh, uh, you know, nevertheless. And uh, and it just shows how how dangerous capitalism is, not only for human uh, for human beings, but for the existence of uh, life on the planet overall. But, uh, let me just Brother let me Anthony. just let me just in addition in addition in, in addition in addition to what uh, Brother Anthony is saying, uh, one of the things that I think is problematic in terms of the movement is that those on the left, uh, so-called animal activists refuse to link the abuse of animals to the abuse of human beings. And they see the two as separate and distinct as opposed to understanding they're on a continuum. And, and why they do that, I don't, I, 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 every time I ask them, I can never get a straight answer in terms of what is your motivation in terms of talking about animal rights, but not hooking it or linking it to human rights. And that refusal to do that uh, creates a great void in terms of overall understanding, in terms of destructiveness of society, uh, because those two things are not linked together, so it's important to make those things understand that continuation, this co- uh, continuum of destructiveness, is something that's inherent in this capitalist system. Unless we fundamentally understand that, then that's no way collective where we can work together in terms of bringing an end to this insane system. But I think, uh, to a large extent, a lot of these so-called liberals who, are in terms of animal rights activists, uh, uh, do it because they don't want to make a link up in terms of human, human, the human exploitation. Because then, if they did that, then they have to acknowledge that some fundamental systemic wrongs have been committed by the government. So I think they're hesitant to do that. I could be wrong, but that's based on my discussions with those who are involved in that community. And Brother Africa, something else we have to pay attention to. A couple of points of note I want to bring up. First and foremost, it's interesting that um, Peter isn't addressing the abuse of these animals, but yet. They can go in at the high-end fashion industry whenever they promote a new level or something along those lines because that's big money as well. Secondly, mm-hmm. the other thing that I'm cognizant of is Cuba has a, has world-renowned coral reefs that are in excellent shape. And you're talking about, what well, if it being 90 miles from the U.S. and they're working on this kind of surveillance technology, what's to say that they won't be trying to um, somehow impact those core resources, like I said, are work right now, and Cuba does a very good job of protecting it to make sure they can use it for proper research and not to abuse animals. But when you talk about that short of distance and what this technology is capable of, that's something you got to pay attention to because it's not like that's a huge distance. I think to your point, Jabari, it, it make you realize, as they often say, the world today or nation day is not an island. Everything is interconnected. What you do in one area of the world, it does affect the other. It affects the whole world. That's an interconnected 
darkness to it. And people need to realize that. Yeah. Hey, panelists, let's play a little game of hot topics for a little while. Um, there have been many things going on this week. And I'd just like to get y'all your feedback, your narrative on how y'all view some of these issues. Now, when you talk about a system, one of the things you do when you talk about a system or you analyze or you critique a system, one of the things you look at is the impact that it has on its people. And when I say impact that it has on people, you look at the kind of behavior, the kind of activities the people involve themselves in. And I also asked myself recently, um, the actor Jesse Select, who's the actor on a well-known Mullet, who's who's well known on this um, which called Doctor Drama Empire. Um, there was an incident that he reported of being attacked by two individuals, and recently it seemed to be um based upon the media, um, recent presentation of his um, filing and police report of being attacked, is that he staged this this whole, 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 this whole drama. And you will have to ask yourself, he was a very well-known actor, not only doing his doctor drama, but he been getting supported, getting work of doing all kinds of things, as well as a singer, et cetera. I'm trying to figure out something about the story that doesn't make sense. Why would a young man of his standing, his stature, and he reportedly that he was getting paid something like $100,000 per episode, why would he stage something something of an attack against himself that is not true and risk um, destroying his economic base that he has created? Can y'all make any sense of this story? What y'all make of this story, yo? Uh, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, according to, from what I read, uh, he did it to get more attention and thereby, uh, you know, he wanted more money than what he was making uh, from uh, from this show. And uh, apparently there's a differential between the... Uh, but but how but between how much actors get uh you know get paid for the program. Now the two lead characters are played by uh Terrence Howard and Taraji P. Henson. Of course they're gonna uh, uh they'll get paid more than any than any of the other actors work because their characters are leads. But for but for some reason, um uh, let's see, uh, Smollett was not satisfied uh, with what he was making. And uh, the attention, uh, you know, he was getting. That's my rationale. It doesn't make sense because uh, staging that, uh, faking that sort of thing and following a report would, uh, would, 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 would wreck his career completely if found guilty of it. I also yeah, wonder, yeah. after based, based on what you say, I see a came put together by him staging, staging that act. If it is true, how 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 does that make him or show him that he would get more money? 
I don't, I still don't see that connection. If that was his motivation, I'm not saying you have to speak to it, but it still doesn't make sense to me. But go ahead, Brother Hackey. Yeah, the the the, the whole case is is very very bizarre. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't discount anything. I mean, you know, I'm often uh, cognizant of the reality that you sometimes, you know, what you what you hear on and on media is not necessarily true. And then also understand that law enforcement can concoct. Uh, all kind of scenarios, so I'm I'm not I'm not uh, going to write anything off, but um, but the only thing I will say about this case is that you know uh, if in fact if true, I mean it's very unfortunate. I mean in terms of notoriety, fame, uh, and potential to make money, all those things existed. So for him to do something like this was kind of productive. I I really don't understand it. And then superposed upon that to say to allege that you know um it was a a racial character. Uh, which doesn't bode well in terms of all the kind of racial attacks that take place in society. So to some extent, we could reason that his actions sort of delegitimize or had a potential to delegitimize, you know, racial attacks in in America. So I'm very concerned about that. I'm very troubled by that. And he struck me as a conscious young young man. And so for him to engage in something like that, assuming it's true, uh, is very, very unfortunate. Well, the situation is such that uh, supposedly they have a personal check from him to these two other men. And so it's very damaging in terms of uh, his outlook of whether he, you know, his innocence and guilt. Uh, he he also uh, uh, represented the gay community and uh, they put some a, 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 a crowd of suspects around while he was he would do such a thing. Uh, uh, but, yeah, it, it is bizarre. Thank you. And he still claim his innocence. Now, and the reason why I'm raising that is, Pandas, um, I think, again, um, Brother Haki, you alluded to the impact of how institutions impact people. And I'm saying that when you look at a society, when you critique a system, uh, one of the things about, you know, when you talk about analyzing the merits of a system, you have to look at uh, the kind of things that it creates and how it influences individuals. And I, you know, and I saw that as a as an example in terms of um, how capitalism, a capitalist system, influenced individuals in the area of even if you were motivated to get more money. The question for me is, if it's true that he's going to pay $100,000 $100, per episode, how much more money does a person need to live? To be to live in decency. If you won't have more fame, how much fame do a person need? He will see you having a lot of fame. So this is again for me is another example in terms of how when you live under a system that pushes everything around the whole interest of having money and being more than what you are superficially, it makes you begin to do things that um, really is counteractive to um, human development. You also often end up destroying yourself. So I just find this whole phenomenon of his whole behavior or that whole incident to be real strange, but, again, is indicative in terms of, you know, the kind of weird things that you can see under a under, under, under capitalist system that seeks to make people realize that you never will have enough money, so, therefore, you must always constantly and constantly and constantly work to make sure you get more and more and more and more money. There are no sense of security in the capitalist system as a worker. So that's you know, one of the things I'm I'm sort of looking at and taking from his behavior. 
in terms of, you know, it puts well, you another, in uh, well, another, these great things. Yes, good, Brother Hackey. Well, 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 another way you can look at it, Brother Africa, is that when you look at it in terms of capitalism's ability to create insecurity, form insecurity in people, uh, it's one of those systems that's very good in terms of facilitating insecurity. And when people are insecure, what they do, they attempt to compensate. And so to explain why people do very, very outrageous things under the guise that is, that is in their best interest. And so this question in terms of expediency, in terms of doing anything or everything, uh, if it's going to benefit you, I think it's something that speaks values in terms of the kind of insecurity that people feel who grow up in capitalist societies. And so when we look at it in terms of all kind of, uh, of violence, when we look at all kind of injustice, when we look at all kind of utilization, when we look at all kinds of uh, a lack of opportunity in terms of those things human beings need, uh, we have a group of people who are who are intent on denying people those things which they need because in order for them to feel better about themselves, then they have to have these surplus of people, you know, whose lives are are in in are in uh, in crisis. So I think that this sense of insecurity that capitalism facilitates. Is is pretty much may in fact be a factor in terms of you know why he did what he did, in terms of not having enough money, never having enough fame, never having enough whatever. So I think it's a very, it's one of those kind of things that society as a whole has to begin to question. Like we can't anticipate or expect the ruling class to deal with the 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 the, the underlying philosophy of capitalism because they benefit from it. And also keep in mind they're also affected by the same insecurity. So they can have billions of dollars. That's still ain't enough. Uh, this need in terms of ensuring mass poverty to ensure that there's devastation. All these things so as to make them feel better about who they are. It's sort of crazy, but it's in fact, that's one of the things that capitalism does very well in terms of facilitating insecurity. So anytime you have an insecurity, anything is possible. So I think uh, in that context, uh, capitalism at its root, I'm sure, had very much played a factor in terms of what transpired. So I have no doubt about that, and I think you're absolutely correct. How would that also go? The brother shows no consciousness in terms of the collective efforts to for emancipation. Uh, uh, he shows no consciousness, you know, that uh, he or he's organized or has any kind of agenda in terms of liberation of our people and uh, without, you know, a collective consciousness, you know, you might do anything. It's just pure individualism as far as the capitalist system. Thank you. Yeah. I would add that one of the effects of capitalism uh, in addition to, uh, you know, the massive oppression and suffering it causes people, it also warps people's thinking as Kwame Ture often pointed out. And I think, uh, and I think this bizarre case, one of the reasons why it's so hard, hard to make sense of it is because you have a situation which people's thinking is warped. And under capitalism, there's no such thing as enough. Capitalism for its survival depends on, on people's consumption rising forever. Of course it doesn't. Uh, your ability to consume is very uh, finite. I don't care how much uh, resources you have. And it's, your, your ability to consume is constrained by time and space, if nothing else. 
So that is one of the contradictions inherent in capitalism. That it uh, that it that that it causes people it works the thing they always want more. Brother Africa. Yes, Brother Jabari. My response to Jesse Smollett's situation is I'm going to take it back to comments that 45 made when he was on the campaign trail. Um, And I'm going to paraphrase what he said. Basically, if Chicago didn't get his act together, that he would be coming for Chicago. And we know he recently um, had a tweet where he was saying about how, you know, this um, Justice Mother racism was hurting, you know, those who were MAGA supporters. Now, the problem is there's already been reported where there's a high number of cases where when it comes to black people reporting incidents to the police, there's a good likelihood that won't even get properly addressed. So given that something like this happened in 45 even decided to even comment on it, how much harder is it going to be for people in Chicago to even have instances looked at because of what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Jabari, it's, it's really interesting because based upon what you just stated, you know, it goes back to one of the questions we raised the last couple of weeks in terms of um, how do you uh, allow six, 4,000 African women to disappear and nobody knows nothing about? You know, given the technological development in society, how cameras are everywhere, how devices that you use, you are tr- constantly being tracked and monitored. But how do 64,000 African women in the U.S. disappear and no one knows nothing about it? Now, if that will happen to any other group of people, what kind of response do you think this uh, government would uh, have towards that particular issue? Well, anyway, just continue along this line. I'd like to raise the issue with y'all when we talk about Chicago. What do y'all make of this, this, this on-again, off-again allegations, accusations of the songwriter and singer R. Kelly? He recently been indicted again for some was old charges that we brought up. Which I understand that today I think one of them is going to be kicked out because it was a subject, it was an old charge, but three other ones will be new charges. But what do y'all make of just the whole issue of this constant going back and forth of accusing this particular artist of participating in a manner that is not um, healthy, not safe, and unjust when it comes to young young women? Well, let me say that I'm not going to condone those actions that we know of where R. Kelly took some indecent liberties with um young women. But the thing that you have to realize is that there's been a very dangerous trend recently where high-profile black entertainers that are icons in their respective fields, all of a sudden once the sexual misconduct issues come up, it's become very difficult for them to even continue in regards to their profession because this has been a growing trend because it wasn't too long ago someone tried to accuse the singer who's an icon in R&B, Usher, of giving them a sexually transmitted disease, and it turns out that was a hoax. But when you look at the kind of clout, the kind of success, and the kind of influence that R. Kelly has had, it only goes to show you that unless you control the infrastructure, there's no guarantee that you're safe from them coming for you. 
So I'm sure R. Kelly, given his success, given his reputation, given the numerous hit songs he had, he probably felt that he may be protected from this, but that's not the case. So you got to understand there's a target on you when you have that kind of viability. And when you look at the kind of moves he could potentially make in the music industry, it's definitely going to make um, those who don't look like him very uncomfortable because there's always potential for him to do something that could be in our better interest because of the resources he had. Okay. And I'm going to take Paris on this, how to deal with this phenomenon of Kelly and his relationships with women. He can't be the only uh, one when we talk about the whole institution of Hollywood. Go ahead, Anthony. Well, it, remind, it reminds me in, in some ways it's somewhat similar uh, to, way, to the way they handled Bill Cosby's situation. Mm-hmm. Not the same that he's on that same level necessarily in terms of fame. But again, you're talking about someone that was uh, at the top uh, of their craft, and uh, they had that, that they had a lot, lot of they accumulated a lot of resources over the years, and uh, you know, and they and they, they and they're getting um, you know persecuted allegedly for for for, for taking advantage of women. And um, you know, and and it raises uh, several questions. One, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you know the uh, uh, the ex uh, excesses uh, that people resort to under capitalism, and also uh, and also the way in which uh, women uh, women are, uh, are, are, are are being used. So I think there's several issues, uh, you know, that that this thing uh, brings up. R. Kelly and uh, other uh, prominent, you know, enter, uh, you know, entertainers. Speaking of other prominent entertainers, we also, we also, okay, hold on for a second, Bobby. We also add Michael Jackson to the scenario, how they dealt with him. But yes, brother Bobby, the mic is yours. Something else we have to, we we can't keep sweeping this under the rug, and we need to continue to ask questions about this. In regards to sexual misconduct, it was established that Charlie Estevez, um, when he anglicized his name, now he's known as Charlie Sheen, same person. But anyhow, it's been known and documented that he infected several women with HIV. Nothing was done to him. It has been known that um, Woody Allen molested his, um, what they became white, but what was his stepdaughter when she was underage? Nothing happened to him. So you got to understand what? Why is it that there's no universal standard that we can't acknowledge that sexual misconduct is evil and unacceptable? But it all depends on who they want to choose to go after for it. Why is that the narrative? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, to add to your point, Jabari, just off the record, I've spoken to some of the some 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 uh, psychologists psychiatrists who deal with wealthy families, and um, one of the things that was um, not directly shared with me on a particular family, but they did share with me just in general, they have experience, experiences with families where there's a large degree of sexual molestation between the fathers and their daughters in these wealthy families that don't get reported. 
but it goes on, and that's one of the things that affect these these children later on in life. But no one want to talk about it because one, the wealth, and two, the Europeans. But it goes on all the time. So you know, it's it's just real interesting how people choose to play up certain things, play the other other things. But go ahead, brother Anthony, brother Haki, you got something to say? Yeah, well, the the point that you raised in terms of welfare families, you know, uh, propensity for uh, molesting their daughters is well documented. And that's one of the things in which the welfare would never allow the media, because they control the media, that kind of discussion would never take place. That kind of visibility simply won't take place because it gets buried. Uh, also, keep in mind that there's, uh, there's a, a, young, a, a fellow by the name of he drops a plane called Lolita Express. Uh, his name, last name is um, can't think of this guy's name. Uh, he's a, he's a big friend of, uh, of of the Orange Menace. He's a friend of Bill Clinton. He's a friend of a lot of powerful people. His name is Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, this guy has his own island off of the coast of Puerto Rico, and when she actually take young girls from New York City, uh, from Puerto Rico, University, he take them to his island where those young girls entertain him sexually. And because of his wealth and influence, he was able to get lawyers to 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 work with the judge to get his case get his time down to thirteen months. And and of course the thing is that when in doing that, they didn't tell the victims of his of, of you know, the victims, you know, of of, of, of this of the of, of the sodomy. They didn't report to their own families. They arbitrarily decided behind closed doors that they would give him only thirteen months and not tell the victims of his crimes. So clearly, this term, in terms of wealth, ain't nothing they won't do in terms of wealth, and they can get away with it simply because they control the media and they protect one another. And so, therefore, this kind of news doesn't get out. Uh, but one of the reasons why there's a great hatred in the community, in, in the white community, in terms of why there's so much discord between white women and and and, and white men, a lot of it has to do with the fact that that treatment in the community. I did talk to one young white lady uh, who was telling me about, you know, she was from a wealthy family, who talked about her molestation from the hands of her father, which is today why she doesn't like white men. And she, she, she theorized the reason why white women don't like white men is because because of this this this, this history in terms of molestation. So clearly this notion that in terms of, you know, blaming, you know, working class people or entertainers, you know, for, you know, uh as has been symptomatic of a of a problem is something that's always existed among the wealthy in which they've been hiding for a long, long time. And increasingly slowly but surely this information is beginning to come out in terms of seeing these wealthy people, a lot of them at least, who they actually are, and understanding that the, that, that what they don't deserve is to be lionized, that they you need to simple what they are and not some symptom in terms of something to emulate. Again, this is something that's very rare to talk about, but we know it goes on. And um, unfortunately, at some point in time, somebody got to speak truth to power, Speaking about things going on, panelists, what do you make of the owner of the New England, New England Patriots football team, very wealthy, multi-millionaire, Robert uh, Kraft? Recently he was um, indicted for possibly participating in child traf- trafficking, or at least having illegal um, sexual uh, intercourse uh, with prostitutes. And um, part of the, part of the reality that came out in the last couple of days is that the area that he was in, the area that he visited, that's that's an area that um, the state believe um, 
is playing a a, a major role in trial in trial trafficking. So what do y'all make of that? Here you have a weapon owner put himself in that kind of position. Why was the need for him to even put himself in that kind of position? And do you think the state going to maybe persecute him as if they would, if if it were you in the same predicament? I doubt if he gets the same treatment uh, that uh, you know that 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 uh, that an African that an African uh, man in that predicament would, mainly because uh, you know of his wealth and influence, uh, and um, you know and uh, and uh, why he put himself in that predicament uh might be uh might might be a, a a power move you know because uh you know he probably felt that he could and that he would not be uh persecuted for taking advantage of uh you know uh you know young women or whatever and um you know this is a a, a widespread uh occurrence in exploitative societies such as capitalism You know, the, okay. the, the fact the, the fact that the fact that these women were indentured servants, if you will, were actually um, sexual slaves, uh, and the mere fact that he frequented this place, uh, you know, speaks values in terms of you know his uh, lack of respect uh, for humanity. Uh, you know, it's 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 not like uh, you know she was like some professional the professional people. Professional women who actually got to do their career for a living. These people, these women were captive slaves, and so therefore they were they were powerless to actually affect, you know, <coughs> you know, uh, um, um, is you know, any, they, they were they were unable to actually do anything in terms of preventing you know uh, this kind of thing from happening to them because essentially, you know, uh, they were being controlled by ruthless individuals. So the mere fact that he frequented this place, and I suspect that he probably knew that because it was a sex parlor, uh, that he knew that, in fact, that the, a lot of the personnel, particularly given the fact that a lot of them were Asian, and not to say that, not to imply that Asian women are, are prostitutes, but in these, these brothels, a lot of these, 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 these Asian brothels, uh, we have these Asian women. A lot of times they are not here. They're, 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 being, they're being forced against their will to participate in uh, sexual slavery. So, but of course, this guy with his money, he doesn't care. In fact, he was convinced that given his power and his wealth in society, he was essentially could carte blanche, do what the hell he wanted to do without any fear in terms of being uh, being caught. But just what happened, he happened to frequent the wrong, the wrong establishment at the wrong time. And so while they were surveilling other people, they ended up surveilling him uh, in, you know, in terms of you know, prostitution. So, but my my biggest concern is whether or not you know, he's going to meet you know, justice. My 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 inkling is that he's not going to be uh, he's not he's going to be somehow vindicated. And then, given his money, uh, I I think what's going to happen, they maybe give him some community service and maybe expunge his record after six months. It'll be clean. So I think that the 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 um, the, uh, the, 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 the lack of accountability. When it comes to wealthy folks, I suspect it's going to wheel its ugly head again when they, when they, if, if in fact this goes to trial. 
Well, you know, we just woke up on record saying, you know, he has been alleged of, of possibly in violation of, of some of these, these these laws, but we let the courts take it itself. But I'm wondering how the commissioner of the NFL will respond to it, considering that he's been punishing the football players just by the nature of being around something that may not be uh, considered legal or just. So I wonder what kind of response you may get from the commissioner, um, Jabari and Brother Moses. What y'all make of this situation? Well, let's preface this and be honest. The reason, because this was, like you said, a especially a person of color, because Goodell makes it a track record to try to show off when it comes to them for the slightest infraction. Goodell would have had a press conference. He would have shown himself. But as you have noticed, he has not done that given the nature of who it is, because under Goodell's tenure, there was no situation where another owner was behaving badly because he was um, publicly intoxicated, and they gave him community service, and they moved on past that. And Goodell really didn't say much about that either. But when you look at in regards to the Patriots owner, him and Goodell have had a very cozy relationship because Robert Kraft is one of the most influential owners in the NFL. That's a widely established fact. And one of the things that Cadell did that um, Kraft will always be in favor of in terms of when it came to the lockout, Cadell was saying everything he could to support the owners, rather than remaining neutral, he did everything he could to support the owners and make it look as if something was wrong with the players last time they had a recent lockout. So when you look at the NFL commissioner being that lock and step with the ownership, it's only so much he's going to say even though it's a blackout in the situation. But the question you have to ask when you look at Robert, look at um, Robert Goodell's tenure, there have been numerous times where players, coaches, and retired NFL personnel have said that there's some strange things that occur when you look at the Patriots organization in terms of strange calls that always go that way, and a number of controversial moments that nothing was said. It's like it's, they consider that a conspiracy theory, of quote. But yet this happens, so you can't say that there haven't been personal situation when you look at the character of the Patriot organization that people did not respond to. And that's where my issue is. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think Mr. Kraft was just like any other capitalist. He saw, you know, this commodity sex and uh, he just wanted to purchase the, purchase the commodity and, uh, and um, these, these workers, uh, you know, un, unwillingly, uh, you know, part of the system of of slavery, uh, uh, were caught up in this situation, and you know, the capitalists will continue on, and uh, his money will speak, and uh, I think he'll get out. He'll get out with some kind of reprimand or something, but he, in the end of the day, you know, it won't be any big deal for him. Thank you. Okay, panelists, we'd like to thank y'all. Y'all well done as we discuss this whole issue of what's going on in our world community. We like to move forward. We'll take a station break and we'll come back. We're going to discuss our theme. We are giving it like a salute, a tribute to Resident um, Periodical slash Magazine. They did an excellent feature this week, really, on highlighting the issue of Venezuela. And we're going to talk about several articles that was recently in their periodical this week. When we come back, we can discuss 
This article, title, and satire, Venezuela, the most important country on the planet. And we'd like to have you join in with us. You can do that by calling in at 323-679-0841. We're going to pause for this cause, and we'll be right back. You're going to listen to Africa on the move.
Black Mule back to Africa on the Moon. You're listening to Buffalo Soldier by Bob Marley. We want to encourage you, stop being a Buffalo Soldier. Stop going off and fighting walls for the rich and the wealthy. It does not benefit you. It has never benefit you. So become conscious and as public enemy, one state, you need to fight the power that be. That's the only way you'll get your freedom and liberation. So, again, we welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Today, we're really doing a highlight or a, or a tribute to Rizman. We tighten up the tonight. Rizman Speak is a periodical blog paper that deals particularly with the struggles that take place with, uh, with Central, South, and Latin America and the Caribbean. And this week, they have an excellent periodical where they talk about various issues that are impacting the realities of what's going on in Venezuela. And we know right now, when we talk about Venezuela, we only get a one-side story, and that's the story for those who are constantly making attempts to deceive and fool the masses of the people. So what we're going to try to do today and always information so you can think clearly and know the truth and you can act upon the truth. So on that note, we encourage you, if you get a chance, check out the article titled, A Satire, Venezuela, the most important country on the planet. It's written by Pedro Santana, uh, published on February 7, 2019. It's an excellent article, which we right now have to discuss some of the points that the author raised and some of the concerns and issues as it relates to the importance of Venezuela. Starting with you, Brother Anthony. When you read this article, and we talk about it being a satire, um, it is very funny in terms of how Venezuela has now become, some may say literally, the most important country in today's world. Based on this article, can you talk about how does this job in reality in terms of why Venezuela is having an impact on countries all around the world and people? Okay. Uh, in essence, um up until the time Hugo Chavez uh, came into power in 1999, uh, Venezuela was under the domination of the U.S. ruling class. And uh, with, um, you know, uh, uh, the start of the Bol- Bolivarian Revolution, uh, then the, uh, the Venezuelan government started using its wealth uh, to help the ma- the working masses of people, which consists of mostly the indigenous and uh, indigenous people of this hemisphere and Africans, and uh, that upset the ruling class of Venezuela, which is mostly European, for the most part. Hence, which explains why uh, most of uh, Juan Guaido's support comes from that uh, minor, uh, that European minority. And uh, the masses of the people support uh, Nicolas Maduro, who succeeded Hugo Chavez as uh, the president of Venezuela. And uh, this upset uh, the U.S. ruling class, so they are organizing they are, uh, 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 a coup to get uh, the PSUV, the Socialist Part of Venezuela, 
out of power. And uh, they and they they uh, they they've engaged in a ruthless economic blockade against Venezuela, in which over billions of dollars of its assets have been seized or under control of capitalists, and that is why Venezuela does not have the ability to purchase the food and medicine and needs for the masses of the people. To make up for this, uh, the U.S. media has been uh, trumpeting all this uh, all the, the, this information about the humanitarian aid that has been uh, uh, allocated uh, to Venezuela, an amount of $20 million. And... Uh, there may be an attempt to smuggle weapons uh, to the uh, uh, minority opposition under the guise of this humanitarian aid, which is why Maduro has rejected it. And those are some of the points I got from this article. Hey, Brother Haki, same question. When you read this article, uh, why does he like good and will all of a sudden his hands become one of the most important countries? Uh, around the world, how has it impacted the rest of the world? Well, I, I, I think in a nutshell, uh, it's the most important country in the world, something because the U.S. deems it so. <laughs> and I think in order to understand that statement, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that when we talk about the European Union and its support for the United States, we have to keep in mind that the European Union is a is was a was a, a <clears throat> was an agenda established by the, uh, by the U.S. government, uh, it wasn't indigenous to the European popul- uh, uh, continent. It was something that was facilitated by the U.S. government in terms of bringing it together. So people also don't talk about that. But uh, the whole European, the whole Europe, the European Union is, is, a, is a U.S. project, and so people don't understand that. So when you look at in terms of the kind of sway the U.S. has over Europe, a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's this relationship that existed historically in terms of Europe has always functioned as a colony of America. And what's happening now is that, quite frankly, people begin to understand that, uh, particularly in places like France and places like uh, Italy, they begin to understand that, uh, you know, that the Europe is, in fact, a colony of America, and many people are fighting to break away. But having said that, it's important to understand that the kind of influence that the U.S. has. So when the U.S. says that uh, Guaido is our man, then the, the, the European Union restructuring of, of Italy and Greece automatically fall in line and back whatever the U.S. says. And so no one is surprised that uh, you have this, 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 this call throughout the world in terms of, you know, Guido, Guido be, being our man. So we're not surprised at all in terms of that. But also it speaks to the, to the kind of um, the power propaganda uh, if you can get enough people to say to Austin and long enough, then people, in fact, around the world will start believing that, in fact, that somehow there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of the uh, Venezuelan democracy. In fact, the, the, the Venezuelan democracy works quite well, and it worked very, very well. Uh, it elected uh, Maduro twice, uh, you know, and the mere fact that those on the right decided to boycott the election wasn't uh, something that was contrived by the government of Maduro. This is something that the right decided upon themselves that it would do. And this guy uh, that they keep on popping up, this white old, white old guy, hello, 
it's very interesting. There was a report came on that this guy was actually he was one of those individuals that was trained in in, in Serbia. So the mere fact that the U.S. has some history in terms of who this guy was speaks values in terms of the U.S. ability in terms of identifying those potential puppets they can use in the future to serve their interests. And this guy is one of those puppets to serve their interests. So to answer your question, Brother Africa, is all it all speaks to the fact that. You know, uh, when, he, when 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 you know when when, he, when the U.S. follows a particular line, uh, much of the Europe continues to follow it. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting when he raised the issue in terms of how Venezuela has split the, the, the European countries. He mentioned that when it comes to Germany, France, Great Britain, and Spain, all of them told the U.S. line, but their other counterparts, Austria, Italy, and Greece. They are not torn the line when it comes to Venezuela. And, you know, like always, when you look at the interests of European countries, many times they fight each other when it comes to their, their so-called self-interest. Um, they also got Air Canada. Air Canada also tore the U.S. line. Also, you talk about how they have a decision split the U.N. Council. They have split some on that. They have no unanimity on that. But all of this is very similar to um, this question I'd like to raise with you, Brother um, Jabari and Moses. When you look at this creation of this Christ in Venezuela, which if you read, in, read just a little bit, you'll find out it's all been orchestrated from the outside by the U.S. and Western countries. It's similar to the same crisis that Donald Trump is trying to create around the border or the building of the walls. He called for his a declaration of the state of emergency because there's supposed to be a crisis on the border where everybody knows it's not a crisis, but yet he declared one. Now, looking at those two realities, what do you say to people when it comes to trying to figure out what is the truth and whether or not should they bow down to any kind of rules or laws where you know it's not based upon the truth? I mean, we were, we were bamboozled to fighting, going to fight in Iraq. That would be in upon lies. Everything this country is doing, the world sees that there are a bunch of lies. It seems like they are imposing it on the world by using force and make the world go along with them. So my question is, how do we deal with this issue of knowing something's not the truth, but yet you have laws that are being passed upon as if it is the truth? How do we deal with those contradictions? Um, Brother Jabari, Brother Moses. Well, we have to be cognizant of what we're going to consider a news source. Because in the fake news era, we're constantly bombarded by those entities, institutions that masquerade as news sources, but they are not news sources at all. And just to get an example of just how far some of these um, entities will go, Fox News will go as far as hiring celebrities and all of a sudden trying to um, masquerade them as so-called news experts in terms of politics or a number of other issues. So anytime you're looking at that kind of forced coercion on people, unfortunately, given that we don't have a populace that's the most media suit, they fall for the okey-doke. So that's the thing. You have to be able to process and analyze what's being presented to you because all propaganda has a purpose, good, bad, and different. And once you understand that purpose, you understand that they're trying to get you to, to support 
um, an opinion one way or the other. And unfortunately, in regards to what we're looking at, because we don't have the money to have our own independent media, if we're going to allow ourselves to be, um, allow ourselves to only receive news from mainstream media, that is going to be what shapes our perspectives, unfortunately. The news media, you know, are serve the interests of the ruling classes. So, you know, it's very, very difficult to get, you know, independent, objective news uh, that 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 will that will expose the contradictions and the motivations of the ruling class in terms of the news. And so we're in a very, very difficult situation, uh, and that's why we need more ethical in the move and democracy now and other news outlets. Thank you. So, you know, Brother Haki, can I get you to speak to this this particular point that came from this article, which I think is very pertinent to our reality here as African people? In this article, Brother Haki, you stated that for every 28 hours, uh, Africans killed by the police force inside the United States, but there's no cause for a crisis. But on March to, on, in March 2015, the Obama administration uh, called for or declared Venezuela as being a, an extraordinary and unusual threat to the U.S. So it called for a national emergency as it relates to Venezuela. How do you reconcile those two realities? You have 20 hours, one of its citizens is getting killed by the official police um, departments in this country, but yet the same state has defined that as a, a, a national um, emergency. But it has been well a, a national emergency. Emergency. How do you reconcile those two realities? Well, I think the two examples you cite can't be reconciled. Uh, you know, what it fundamental, fundamentally comes down to, Brother Africa, is the question of power and the pursuit of those powers, those, those interests by the powerful. Uh, in the case of, in terms of every 28 hours, three African people are killed in America, uh, of course, yes. It, it, and, and, and when you think about it logically, that constitutes a, a real state of emergency. Because when you get that kind of number of your own citizens being killed on a, on a daily basis, then it speaks violence in terms of just what kind of what kind of government you have in place here, and that if this continues, then inevitably it's going to encompass more and more people. So it becomes a, it inherently becomes a real threat to the overall functioning or the longevity of that system. And so therefore, as such, it becomes a national emergency. But of course, because the powerful define what the emergencies are, they define it's not as emergency. They see it as business as usual. Whereas in, whereas in Venezuela, in which there is no, there's no threat, there's no imminent threat to America from Venezuela, it doesn't matter. The powerful organization, as you've already alluded to, to simply frame the discussion, create the perception, create the narrative which says that these facts are, quote, unquote, de facto enemies of the United States. And people who are ill-informed, people who don't understand any better, simply believe what they've been told by the media. And, of course, we can't... Ex- we can't, we can't excuse the power of the media. Now, keep in mind, Brother Africa, uh, in this country, over recently, over 2,000 Twitter posts pertaining to what's really going on in Venezuela, Venezuela were taken down by Twitter. 
The question, of course, is why would you do such a thing? Well, clearly, the whole idea in terms of removing those, those pro-Venezuelan tweet twits was to ensure that a certain narrative would never gel in the minds of folks. In other words, what was more important is that the propaganda that the ruling class put out there, they want to make damn sure that that resonates in the mind of the citizenry. And so that's why they can create this odd paradox where, on one hand, uh, where you have a legitimate national security interest in terms of African people being killed, and you dismiss it. But on the other hand, creating, creating out of thin air this emergency that doesn't exist, but in, but, but in actual, been in a position to actually form it in the minds of folks a, a, a threat that, does, that, that really exists. And so, therefore, we have to understand the role of propaganda in terms of all of this. And so the, you ask the question, can it be reconciled? No, it can't be reconciled. Because it's not supposed to be reconciled. It's simply a question of power. And until the American people come enlightened in terms of you know how how the state operates, we continue to be uh, 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 accomplices, you know, and all this just the brutality, all this killing, this this, this mass criminality uh, that the U.S. calls foreign policy. So it can't be reconciled, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, you alluded earlier in one of your um, presentations earlier on this program about the history of the West and how they have treated countries in the South. Now, Brother Anthony, uh, I think one of the points that the article brings out, I think the conscious world should be very frightened, uh, frightened about, is that alluded to this issue of Venezuela is now putting the whole world in the position of looking at if we are going back to how it governed itself and ruled at the beginning of the 20th century, where it was okay to loot as long as it was peaceful. You could do it in a peaceful manner. Can you can you elaborate a little more on this, this issue of looting and being so peaceful at the expense of the masses of people in terms of how it was done in the early 20th century, 20th century and look at this this issue around trying to dominate Venezuela want to go back to that same kind of old old days practices. Yes, I uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll try to do that. Uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, around uh, around the time the time of World War One, the U.S. dominated uh, the Western Hemisphere completely. Uh, and they were they were plundering and exploiting the resources of Central uh, and South America without encountering resistance from the masses of the people, or very limited resistance, uh, to be more uh, precise, because the people were not sufficiently organized. Now, uh, today in Venezuela, the people are organized, and they're standing up to defend their sovereignty. So uh, they uh, so so what the and uh, this angers the ruling class inside the imperialist countries, such as the U.S., Britain, and uh, France, and uh, other countries, and they want to roll back the clock. Uh, that that is the neoconservatives. They want to roll back the clock to the days when the, when they encountered virtually no resistance to the exploitation of the resources of uh, Central and South America. 
and Venezuela stands in the way of that. And what people need to understand is that the masses of the people in Venezuela are, are, have no intention of going backwards in time. They are going to fight to maintain the sovereignty and fight to maintain the gains they've made over the last 20 years. And uh, there's no desire of the masses to go back, uh, you know, to the, uh, you know, to the old days. And uh, that is what uh, you know. I think people have to understand, and that is why there's resistance. And in those countries that are trying to, you know, uh, follow the U.S. model, uh, to find uh, follow the dictates of the U.S like in uh, Argentina and numerous other places, they're recounting resistance from the masses of the people. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I think that is why, contrary to what Trump claims, uh, eventually most of the world will ultimately be socialist. Because, as we alluded to earlier, the earth cannot tolerate you know, capitalism any longer. Not only humanity, but the planet. Hey, Brother Bobby, Brother Moses, before we move on, we'll move forward to the next article. Anything else you'd like to add in reference to this article? God thank the author raises raise some also interesting points around this whole issue that Brother Anthony just alluded to. They Countries will no longer now continue to let them plunder their resources, and they want to have a sense on now in terms of controlling their own humanity and, uh, and having dignity. So, in the essence, when we talk about this battle of Venezuela, that's what we're talking about. I think it would be wise for the people to come to understand you know, these are fundamental, fundamental ideas and principles and values that all human beings should be allowed to um, have and participate in. In terms of right to own control their own humanity. So, but anyway, final thoughts on this article, Brother Jabari. And Brother Africa, let me just say I concur with Brother Anthony's point regarding capitalism's overconsumption. The thing we also have to realize is that if um, once the country really gets serious about doing that, there will be numerous entities that will be in trouble. Because when we look at the business practices of several um, controversial coffee makers, the way they get resources is to go to Venezuela's neighbor and take um, the resources that are needed, such as cocoa, to make the coffee. And then they use it and make an extraordinary profit. And they don't give the people where they take the resources from anything. Or even to give another example, since we're such a computer-driven society, we look at the cost of what a computer may cost in the Western society while it's expensive. That doesn't compare to how it's tripled in the companies where they get the resources to make the computer parts. So that's the thing you got to understand that you're talking about when this happens, this will um, help to end the glaring contradiction that we see on a daily basis because of the capitalistic conditions. Well, let me, let me, let me just interject something real quickly, Brother Africa. Uh-huh. But here's the thing. Um, you know, um, former um, Defense Secretary um, 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 Rumsfeld, he talks about the fact that it's not the U.S. fault that that their oil is under the ground of other nations. Think about that one for a while. It's not the U.S.'s fault that the U.S.'s oil is under the grounds of other nations. 
So, so this, so this kind of hubris, this kind of this notion that they have a fundamental right in terms of controlling other resources, particularly when it comes to people of colors, that they have a fundamental right to control their resources, is something that's pretty much part of the so-called in capitalist ethos in terms of you know how they see people of color throughout the world. So um, people of color have no other choice, you know, but to work together because you got to understand that they're fundamentally under assault by a worldwide system, which is fundamentally says that African nations, nations of color, have no fundamental right that white people are bound to respect. So this is the problem that we're talking about in a nutshell. And, you know, um, Brother Haki, that point is true and it's consistent when you look at the U.S. policy and Western Europe policies when it comes to um, um, people that are non-European. And to speak of that, what we're going to do right now, we have a sister, I believe, is joining us from Cameroon. I think we have with us our sister from Cameroon, Sister Celine. Um, since we're talking about dominating resources and controlling people, Sister Celine, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on a move. Can you hear us? Yes, I'm hearing you. I'm getting you. Yes, Sister, how you doing? Sister Celine, we are really talking about the phenomenon that is going on now in Venezuela and where the West is trying to control the people and their resources. And we know that this phenomenon, when we come to, when we look at the behavior of the West, when we talk about the West, we're talking about U.S. and European countries, along with Canada, Israel, etc. Um, they have this policy when it comes to people of color where they don't think that we have the right to live as human beings. Now, we know that in Cameroon there, there are Many major problems are going on in Cameroon that somewhat have many similarities to Venezuela. Well, you just talk a little bit again to our people, for those who have not heard you before, what's going on in Cameroon? Because I understand there's a, 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 a internal uh, war that is taking place that is, trying, that is about to split the country if it hasn't already. So can you just talk a little bit about your situation in Cameroon and what's going on? Uh, the situation in Cameroon, um, you know, for almost three years now, we are in crisis in Cameroon. I can say even five years because it started in the north with the Boko Haram. And now, yeah, since 2014, it started in the north uh, with the Boko Haram between Nigeria, then uh, uh, Central Africa and Cameroon, the the Boko Haram were up there. And the war has not even ended up there, far north. It's still continuing, and people are suffering. I think there are more than 3,500 refugees up in the north of Cameroon from Nigeria who have fled from Nigeria and they are staying in the north of, northern part of Cameroon, one of the villages there. And then when you come to the northwest and the southwest, you now find the crises that are going out down there, or secessionists, the Anglophones want to divide from the uh, from La Republic, the Francophones. They want to create their own country. And that has been going on now for three good years. Children have been dropped out from school. The war is intensifying every day. Last uh, last two weeks ago, people were locked up for two weeks 
for 14 days. You could not come out of your house. Even when you go to the stream, even to fetch water, the, the boys will have you well beaten that they have said you should go back to their house. It was not easy. It was not easy with people. I tell you, it wasn't easy. They are burning down schools, burning even hospitals. Uh, last week, a hospital was burned in Kumba, and four people were burning that inside that hospital. So many things are going wrong. So many things are going wrong. People are hungry. There's no way to farm. People cannot go to their farms because you are afraid of the army. You are afraid of the secessionists. You don't know who you can meet on your way to the farm. So people are really suffering in the Cameroon. And you know, there are people behind this war that are pushing our youth to die because they want to earn much money. They, aren't, they want to earn wealth in this war. We, know, we don't know them, but there are people who are hiding. It's a hidden agenda. We don't know the real people that are behind this issue. But I know God knows them. Um, about three weeks now, we heard over the television that um, um, the people of Italy, one minister in Italy rose up against France, that it is France that is causing Africa to suffer. You hear that every year we lost more than 2,000 Africans who are struggling to cross the Mediterranean Sea to go to Europe to look for greener pastures. And they are dying every year. And they say the cost is France because France has refused to give the 14 countries that they were the colonial masters independence. And because of that, the people are suffering. You can't imagine that if a country is having 1,000 francs, France is... France have to keep five, uh, 500 francs and give them 500. How can people live in such a, with such a minimal amount of money when another country is having all their money in their own coffers, in their own banks? So it's not easy. Those are the things that are pushing Africans into war. Those are the things that are making us poor, and we are suffering every day. It's not easy with us. It's not just easy. People are just perishing. The other day I went to Kum I went to Dwala. They were to go and bury my brother in law somewhere. I couldn't go because it was not easy. If I temper there as a leader, those boys don't want to see anybody who is a leader. Who has been leading people, they will just say you are a bad person because you are trying to open the eyes of people and they can kidnap you at any time and take you in the bush and begin to ask for ransom. Things are not just easy with us. Even my coming back was not easy. I could not take a good bus because I hadn't the money. Everything you just talk. I took a bus that even right at this moment, my body is paining me. And unfortunately, I, yesterday I was called that my in-law has also died. The husband of my elder sister. So we are just we are just in a fixing Cameroon. It's not easy. But I know that with God all things are possible. 
as the war started, I believe that one day it will end. I believe that as France has started to persecute, uh, as uh, Italy has started to persecute France, if other countries will enter in this issue, I think Africa will be transformed. If 14 countries in Africa could manage their resources alone, I think that will help Africa a lot. People cannot remain slaves under other people and they begin to work and they enjoy. People will suffer in Africa. Even in Cameroon, they want to they want to control everything. If they give, let me say, they give a contract to another country, France will be very angry because the other country will execute it in a way that Cameroon will benefit, especially with the Chinese. Boko Haram started because there was uh, gold in the north that they wanted somebody to mine it. France said the way to mine it and give Cameroon 30% and own 70%. The Cameroon government refused because the Chinese promised to mine the gold and give Cameroon 70% and take 30%. That's where the Boko Haram started. The French people went behind and intoxicated the people in that area that they should start war so that the Chinese people should not tap the gold. They should not tap the resources of North. So see what we are suffering. We are really suffering in the, highest, in the hands of these so-called European people, especially the Frenchman. The Frenchman is very wicked, I tell you. They are so wicked. I used to say that if the white people can all the white people can leave Africa, then Africans will be in heaven. They will live better than what they are living today. Because the way they are controlling us is only to see us suffer. They don't want to see us live a good life, a better life. They don't want us to enjoy our own resources. It's not easy with us. Tell you, our children cannot go to school because if you don't have money to take them to the other part of the country, the French part of the country, our children will not go to school. So it's terrible. It's not easy. Okay, Sister Celine, I want you to stay with us. Um, I'd like to make a maybe make some draw some parallels between what's going on in your country, our country, our home, Cameroon, and what's going on with our brothers and sisters in Venezuela. Uh, panelists, uh, you just heard some of the situation that was described by Sister Celine in Cameroon. One of the things she raised she raised was the issue of when you look at the outside forces who are really behind the problems of African people throughout the world, whether we're in Venezuela or if we're in Cameroon. You see we have partners of crime, whether it be under the U.S. banner or under the French banner. There are partners in crime in terms of trying to control and exploit the resources of African people. Now, we're looking at the issue of Venezuela. One of the things that the Polaroid Revolution wanted to do is the same thing that Sister Celine is raising about what's going on, what they want to do in that country. And that is create a society, create an economy where, where the brothers, where the people will have basic rights, the basic rights to education, to health care, to food, to housing. Man, that's not too much to ask for. 
But at the same time, you have the Western forces that they are opposed to that. That's why we say it's important for them to understand that the fundamental contradiction when we're talking about African people oppression globally comes from the banner of imperialism. So, Brother Haki, Anthony Panelist, based upon what you have heard from what's going on in Cameroon, how do you apply or, or take lessons of what's going on in Venezuela and, sit, uh, and share with them that this is why we must support one another and make sure we become conscious and fight for getting all the information we can on what's going on around the world. Now, one of the things that in Venezuela cases, they're giving you misinformation. Versus in Cameroon, they're not getting you no information at all in terms of what's going on. So can you speak to those those, those issues that I'm attempting to try to raise uh, with your panelists tonight to share with our listening audience? Why is Paul not saying these struggles are jointly together? We must come together and work with one another. It's open for anyone else who would like to go. All right, I'll take a stab at it. Um, in both, in, in, in the case of uh, Cameroon and Venezuela, the imperialists are after the resources and labor of those respective areas. Uh, let's see. I am not as familiar with um, uh, what uh, mineral specific mineral resources that Cameroon has. But I know that in the case of Venezuela, it has the largest reserves of petroleum in the world. And as a matter of fact, uh, the U.S. has explicitly stated that they that they want they want to control the oil, which they had control over prior to Hugo Chavez coming uh, uh, to power in 1999. Now what they now what 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 is at stake is the reason why Venezuela is suffering is because they didn't have sufficient time to diversify their economy so that they weren't so dependent upon petroleum. Now uh, uh, another and so therefore they've had just like Cameroon are having to import food. Even though they have enough land to be able to grow it themselves, it's just that uh, it's just that Venezuela, among other things, uh, suffers from uh, uh, what in economics is called the Dutch disease. In other words, that uh, in other words, they were getting so much money from uh, uh, from their petrol uh, from the uh, from the petroleum. That they net that that it, that it caused uh, an overpricing of their other resources, and it was not economically feasible for them to diversify. Therefore, they're in a situation where they're having to do things like import food and medicine, which they can't do now because of the U.S. blockade. And similar, and uh, and I think that there's a similarity with Cameroon. Because of the wars that are engineered, the people cannot develop their resources adequately to be able to feed themselves. I mean, you know, when we talk about the issue of the West looting, I mean, Sister Celine gave a good example in terms of particularly in France and what's going on with U.S. as relates to Venezuela. U.S. is now collecting the monies from the oil that belongs to Venezuela, and they're either they're holding the money or talking about giving to the opposition force. 
whereas in France, whereas in Cameroon, the French they control the national currency, they control the national reserves of another country that's not even a part of them. They have 14 West African countries where their reserves is in France and not in their own homeland. And that phenomenon got to change. Mm-hmm. And so the only are- country that didn't fall victim to that was Guinea, because they voted no to stay, uh, uh, you know, uh, to staying inside the uh, French community, and uh, and and therefore they, unlike most former French colonies, they do not have the CFA franc as their currency; they have their own. Now, there was a second article that came out of this um, um, periodical uh, blog page, Resmond, where it's titled that it's titled "How Trump Attacks on Venezuela Trigger a Revolution in Haiti." Now, I thought that was interesting because again, it shows the weakness of our movement and our people's struggle. Now, Brother Haki, can you speak to the connectedness? How does what goes on in Venezuela have had and have impact on our brother and sister in Haiti? Well, well, simply, I think the easy way to understand it is that when we when we, when we talk about the motives of imperialism, keep in mind they're always trying to find new and more effective ways in terms of oppressing African people throughout the world. And so, if they could form some type of uh, strategy in 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 let's say Haiti. Uh, so I think to a large extent, you know, uh, when, when we talk about the terms of equality, uh, one of the things I think that um, was very, very important to underscore is that, um, you know, historically, you know, there's been a relationship between Haiti and Haiti and Venezuela. So to some extent, this attempt in terms of formulating the correct strategy in terms of oppressing both nations has been somewhat compromised. And that's because of the historical relationship between the Haitians in Venezuela. And it superimposed upon that is a situation where Venezuela did a lot for Haiti in terms of providing oil, cheap oil for its for its people in terms of being able to, you know, to run its to run its infrastructure. And in the process, enabling Haiti to save large sums of money to the tune of four billion dollars. Now unfortunately that four billion dollars is being being taken away by the by uh, current former administrations and the current administrations where I'm more deep. Uh, but anyway, to answer your question, Brother Africa, it has a lot to do in terms of you know the the strategies that have been employed by the by the by the Western nations in terms of how best to go about exploiting East nations. So I think that's the the, the overriding feature. Okay, um, Sister Celine. Yes, I'm getting. Yes, I'm getting. Um, in in terms of trying to get the basic necessities. How can people support support what's going on on the ground? How can they support your organization and what's happening back home? And how can we find out more information about what's going on? Uh, I I think for now we we have a bank we have a bank account in um, a bank in uh, Cameroon, a freelance bank that people can put uh, support inside for us because I know material things to come. It's not easy. It may come to the border or you ship something. It will not be easy for us to retrieve. 
if we as we don't have uh, anything for now or anything to be sent to us to Afrilam Bank. We have an account in Afrilam Bank. Uh, which we have an account number and I I think I I said it uh, through Brother Lee's email address. He can give it to anybody who wants to, to send us money. He can send through that account and we'll be able to get it. We have more than more than six uh, six thousand refugees in the southern Cameroon. These refugees are in the Francophone area who have left Southern Cameroon and they are there. The other day over the television, uh, I saw one woman and the children who have been thrown out because they took a house in Douala and they could not pay rent. They, carried, they, had, they don't have money to eat and they didn't have money to pay rent. They were thrown out of the house. I really went. There are so many of them. For my own village, we have more than 1,500 refugees who have fled from my subdivision and are living somewhere with children, with husbands and wives, having nothing to live on. They are struggling to look for minimal jobs to do so that they can survive. It's not easy with us. I tell you, every day one is shedding tears when you see the way people are suffering. Sometimes there are things that we cannot even say them because it's not well, not going well. I think without an account, we can help. So, Lane, what we're going to do is if anyone would like to get in touch with you or find out ways of supporting, supporting the, the movement on the ground that you're working with. We will make sure we give them that. We will give them that information. They can contact us by emailing us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. Yes. Okay. Yes. If somebody yeah, well, wants, if somebody wants my email, my email address is uh, Maya Selim uh, uk. That's my email. Okay. Spell it out again yes. to our listening audience. Spell your email out again. N A Y as in Yam A H as in He then Selim C E L I N E Naya Selim. Have you got that? Okay. Okay, Selim. Adiahu dot C O dot U K. Uh, then our phone number is zero one one that's our phone number. If anybody has a question, you can call through that uh, phone number. And, and the name of the organization you represent, Celine? You have a woman organization oh. you, you represent. Can you briefly tell the, the name? The name of our organization is um, 
Yeah, Mundani Believing Women Cooperative. Mundani Believing Women Roots and Tubas Cooperative is believing. There are women who have believed that they can make it. That with God, with them, they can make it. They can do anything that God will strengthen them to do it. That's why they call themselves believing women. That they believe that there's nothing impossible that somebody cannot do. If you put out your hands to do something and you have faith in what you want to do, you'll be able to do it. So that's the name of our Women cooperative. Uh, we have oh, we have more uh, than one hundred women. Mm-hmm. Isolene, um, stay put. We'll come back to you before we close out the program for your final thoughts. But meanwhile, panelists, when we look at this article, um, that title, "How Trump's Attack on Venezuela Trigger a Revolution in Haiti," one of the things this article brings out real clearly, and I like for the panelists to speak on it, is this question of the hypocrisy that the U.S. and the West make out of this whole concept of rule of law and democracy. One of the things that is real consistent between what takes place in Venezuela and what's going on in Haiti is the displacement of imposing leadership on the people. They are going. In, they have gone in both of these countries, and, and, and Haiti, in Haiti's case, created coups, to take out their authentic leadership and put in leadership to represent their interests. They have done this in both countries. Will y'all speak to that phenomenon, um, Brother Jabari and then Brother Moses, in terms of how they have gone to Haiti, they didn't recognize the authentic um, leadership, like for the president, Brother Aristide. He was democratically elected by the, pop- by, by the populace. They came and forced them out, and then they put their stool pigeons in and continued to loop and steal. And this is the same method that they, they wanted to do in Venezuela and think people should go back, go by these methodologies of thuggery. So can you speak to that a little bit, Brother Jabari and Brother Moses? What shall I take on that? Until we hear from Brother Jabari and Brother Moses, Brother Haki. Yeah. Well, All right, go ahead, yeah. Brother Moses. Uh, as you said, uh, RFC was president and uh, duly elected, and uh, you know they brought in the, the the military to take him out and uh, threw him out of the country and uh, and installed a puppet government. And you know this is this is what they're attempting to do in in Venezuela. Um, it's a, you know they've done it uh, throughout uh, Latin America, one way or the other, in different countries, and uh, and you know it's 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 a uh, 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 bad situation. Uh, it's a bad just capitalism has has doing its thing, and you know they they overthrew the government in Chile. Uh, this is. This is the way they operate. This is how they. This is just standard operating procedure for the for the government of the U.S. and, and its capitalist corporate interests. Uh, you know, it's, it's 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 like I said, just standard operating procedure. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Tabari, Aki. 
God responds. Uh, Jabari, okay, well, I'll respond. Uh, yeah, I, I agree, Brother Moses. Uh, it's pretty much standard operating procedure. When you talk about hypocrisy uh, and Western hypocrisy, uh, you know, at this point in the ball game, uh, you know, um, even they are uh, uniquely aware of the hypocrisy. It's just a game that they play. They keep on using certain buzzwords because it does resonate with a small percentage of the population. Uh, but they understand it's a game. And so when you talk about democracy, human rights, they don't want to believe that. Uh, you know, it's just something that they simply say because it sounds good. Uh, when we look at Haiti, for example, uh, recently they just um, caught in right away Venezuelans told the Haitians what was happening. They caught six Americans and one Serbian, along with one Haitian, bringing arms into Haiti uh, for the sole purpose of fomenting, uh, 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 you know, atrocities to justify, you know, military intervention, uh, you know, by the U.S. Uh, they caught them. They didn't, get a chance, they didn't get a chance to pull that off, but they tried. Uh, Venezuela is a bit more complicated. When we talk about the fact that they brought the plane in there and brought weaponry in there and attempt to sneak it into Venezuela, it's an old strategy. And so certainly when you talk about Elliot uh, Abrams, the war criminal, this practice in terms, you know, trying to undermine governments by military force is something that's, 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 that's well documented in terms of, in particular, uh, Elliot Abrams' uh, um, um, vernacular. Uh, when we talk about U.S. imperialism generally, of course, uh, this whole notion that you know that might makes right is very much a prevailing theme in terms of how how the British forces operate. So therefore, if they can do it, you're powerless to stop them. Then they, you know what they're going to do it, which is why it's so important for people of, of, of color around the world to to organize their societies. They got to be the best organized societies in the world because this Western beast, this imperialist structure isn't going anywhere, and if you don't have the might to stand up against it, then it's going to consume you. It's that simple. So when we talk about Haiti, we talk about Venezuela, and we talk about this hypocrisy that exists in the West, yes, but it's always been that way, Brother Africa. Nothing has changed. So, um, Brother um, Anthony, can you speak to this, this question of tampering, interference, and PP elections? I know that's all we've been hearing over here about the illusion that the Russian interfered in this election and people is all up on. Now, who is the biggest violation of interference in people's election more so than the West, particularly by the U.S.? Can you just talk about the interference in elections as it relates to Haiti and Venezuela, Brother Anthony, based upon this article and the others that you have read? Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, one, uh, the U.S., very frequently intervenes in the elections uh, of other countries, particularly if there is a, a, a person coming to power that they don't like. And they did this in Haiti because they, uh, they blatantly uh, 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 threatened to withhold aid if they did not put in Clinton's uh, 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 man uh, – Michelle, Michelle Martelli in the power. So, uh, so, so that's how Martelli got in. And uh, I want to add something that, that people need to keep in mind, that political organization and education 
is very critical because one of the things that capitalism does is it is very good at exploiting uh, class class interests that exist inside a community. And it did this, and uh, let's see, uh, uh, Barack Obama is a, is a classic example of this, and also how they've identified a comprador class within Haiti that they can exploit to serve their interests. And uh, so that is why political organization and political education becomes extremely important because you not only have to recognize, be able to recognize your external enemies, but also your internal enemies in terms of uh, being able to defeat uh, the uh, imperialist interests. You have to recognize those forces that are likely to cut deals with uh, the imperialist forces for their own selfish interests. And that is the problem that is confronting Haiti today. Okay, speaking to our listening audience, you're listening to Africa on the Move. You have any comments or questions based upon what we have discussed or what we have heard. Please hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Please hit one. If you have any comments or questions you'd like to make right now, and, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Yes, Brother Jabari. I'm just going to um, speak to one of Brother Ed's last point when he talk about um, those eternal opposition. We got to understand when it comes to election rigging, there's no limits in terms of what the U.S. would do because we got to remember with the last U.S. presidential election, there was a popular candidate that polls all across the board show were guaranteed to defeat the Orange Menace, but his own party sabotaged his election chances. Yet they want to cry about what all these other folks did, but his own party sabotaged his election chance. So what does that tell you about what they will do globally? And this is supposed to be the so-called party that represents the people interest, and they sabotaging candidates, and yet we're supposed to believe, instead of looking at them as two parts of the same coin, we're supposed to believe that we can actually trust and endorse and celebrate them, and they sabotaging the people that are supposed to be supposedly part of their party. So that really brings the question of allegiance when it comes to these um, political leaders. They're only loyal to what's going to be profitable to them. As a body, your point is elevated real clearly. If people get a chance to read this this article on how Trump's attacks on Venezuela trigger a revolution in Haiti. But anyway, panelists, job well done. We um, have to go into our closing. Um, what we can do right now, we got each one of y'all make just a closing statement on tonight's program. Tonight's program was really a little tribute, acknowledgement. To a uh, to an institution, Resmond, that did an excellent job this week on this whole question what's going on in Venezuela. If you get a chance, please check them out. Uh, so right there, we're going back to our sister Celine. Sister Celine, you got two three minutes. Your final thoughts, what you want to say to our listening audience. Sister Celine, the mic is yours. Um, yes, the first thing I want to say is that what we are suffering in Cameroon is what. Venezuela and other countries are suffering because the, the problem is that we have oil in Cameroon. We have gold and other minerals that the Europeans want to tap from Cameroon. That's what is killing us in Africa. And I want also to give uh, the name of our bank, 
and the account number is relatively very long. So I would read it if uh, somebody has a pen and want to take it down. Oh, the name of the bank is a Freeland First Bank. And the name of the bank account is uh, Mubwet, M-U-B-W-E-R-T-C-O-O-T-P-O-G. That is the name of an account. And the code is 21, Cameroon. The bank code, the country code is CM21. The bank code is 1005. The branch code is 00026. Account number 0555011101. The key is 07. And uh, the swift code is CCEICNCX. That is, if you put uh, any money in the account and then you don't add the shift code, it will not come to Cameroon. The shift code is CCEICMCX. Thank you, people, very much for the time we have been together. I believe that and I'm praying that God will help us as we are struggling for Mother Africa. God will give us the desires of our hearts. He will also give you a desire, own heart desires and give you people wisdom on how to handle the issues of Africa. Thank you people very much. God bless you till when we meet again. I'm happy to be a part of that family. Thank you. Thank you, sister, and give the people uh, 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 best regards and we are in this battle together, but we know one thing is certain, and that's victory. We thank you. Okay, before I go to my panelists, we have a caller that's been waiting for a while. I think they may want to say something. Caller, your last four numbers is 1108. you have any comments or questions you'd like to raise, we'll get you a minute or so to make it. Caller, 1108. If you'd like to speak, you can speak now. Okay, I think caller 118 was just going to... Let's support him tonight, but we'd like to thank him for his support, or her for her support, him or her. And we'll now go to our closing remarks from Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your closing remarks for tonight. Yes, um, I think we have to understand that the U.S. government is dominated by corporate interests and that basically it's a profit-driven foreign policy and that this exploits the resources of the world, various communities, it has no other interest other than that, and and that basically it will use democracy or the words, it will play lip service to democracy when it's necessary to overthrow a socialist or progressive-leaning government, and and it, it will claim that, um, that there's illegal elections and illegitimate representatives and, and our them with the counter-revolutionaries that it propagates throughout this, this, the internal workings of, of the country. And this is a, this has been its pattern, and it's, it continues to do so 
that's trying to do so in Venezuela right now. And uh, it, it's against Cuba, it's against Nicaragua, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a vicious, dehumanizing foreign policy. And it's, it's capitalism at its worst. And then with Donald Trump in Trump's office, he's already proclaimed there's not going to be any socialism in him. And uh, he's a rabid fascist. And so we have to understand that and and work and educate people accordingly. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. Next, Brother Hackey, your final thoughts for tonight. The only thing I can say is, you know, the situation in society is very, very critical. Capitalism is in great decline. And one of the reasons why we see these outrageous shenanigans taking place um, throughout the world is because the capitalism is in crisis. And one thing is clear. When the IMF uh, director, uh, Christine Lagarde, tells the world that the economy is in real, real trouble, then she knows what she speaks of. So all I can say is that, you know, you know, get ready. Uh, the inevitable is going is, is, is on the way. Uh, it's very, very important because people become organized and, and to expect the unexpected. And as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. And Brother Africa and to the panel, have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hackey, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for the night. Yes, my final thought for tonight is that we must get organized and join a political organization that's working for our people's liberation. And for people that want to learn more about the AAPR, African People's Revolutionary Party, G, CGC, and our position on the Venezuela, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org, or you can also call us at 202-239-2676. Thank you, Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. We'd like to thank all of our participants, all our supporters, our listening audience, for supporting Africa on the Move, and we'd like to remind you that Africa on the Move is a weekly program that can be listened to by dialing in at 323-679-0841 every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We come and tell you, come and join us, because we come to say, without information, you cannot think, without organization, you cannot think clearly. We try to provide you with information that will help to inspire you to a high-level activity towards working towards alleviating the suffering of our people and humanity. And we know that the only way, the only way, and the best way to do this is to be organized. So we, too, encourage you to join an organization that is working for our people. In closing, we're going to play out two cultural presentations, and then we're going to leave, leave with you a presentation by Brother Kwame Ture, where he talks about lessons for the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I thank you we take heed to some of the lessons lessons that he has left and his legacy and how people will be better off. So please stay tuned, don't go nowhere. We'll see you next week at seven PM. Forward to Africa.
discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s mid with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings like animals of the lower form have instincts. Human beings unlike animals of the lower form have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. 
All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they, are served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time. But it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be the same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. This aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. 
in order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly, if one is here for revolution, and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation. At all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, Bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students joined with the masses of the people came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students to clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants.
But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and in a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly 
that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populists. We did work for the populists. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. 
I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which SNCC gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions, then, can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. 
Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Because <laughs> much as he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus, they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere, the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is, of course, the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself. But people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then, the final point then, you must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? <laughs> but if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. 
In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, dedicating, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine. Palestine, needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom.
Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. 